Welcome to the Cybersecurity Weekly Podcast. I'm Jane Lu, podcasting from Singapore today. And with us today, we are very happy to have a guest who is joining us from the US and his professor, Jiang Su Li, who is the Assistant Professor of Finance at George Mason University, who has extensive research interests in blockchain technologies and fintech applications. And he will be sharing with us game theory tactics and how blockchains such as Bitcoin could be vulnerable to track actors deploying such tactics. Thank you, Professor Li, for joining us in the podcast today. Well, it's a pleasure. So before we start and deep dive into this uh, game theory understanding, uh, I thought we could go back to the basics of blockchain and Bitcoin. And uh, when we hear about Bitcoin and blockchain, we always hear about, you know, trustlessness and decentralization. And it's that we do not need to know who the participants are or trust them in order to perform transactions in the network. And I understand this is because each user in the network has the same view of things that, for example, we can see Bitcoins coming from my wallet to your wallet and then from your wallet to, say, uh, paying some utility company. And this view cannot be tampered with and everyone has the same view. And this is what is referred to, I understand, as a single source of truth. Because there's consensus, there's agreement, everyone agree that I have transferred Bitcoin to you and that um, everyone could see the Bitcoin leaving your wallet to the utility company's wallet. And how we get this agreement, I think, is quite straightforward uh, in a centralized um, system. So if you have a central authority, you can keep track of what's going on. But if you do not have this central authority and everyone is spread out over the world, it's quite difficult to understand how you can do that. I understand there's something called the Benzantin Generals problem that lay out this um, difficulty. So can you tell us about this challenge and what is the Benzantin Generals problem? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so the Byzantine Generals problem is a kind of a metaphor developed by a paper in 2000, sorry, 1982 by uh, Lamport, Shostak, and Geese. So the paper basically describes a kind of a fictional story about a bunch of generals besieging a fortress. And the course is very well protected. So they are deciding whether they want to attack the fortress. So uh, if they attack simultaneously, then they have a chance they will win and conquer the fortress. Uh, however, if just only a small set of them attacked, uh, then because this fortress is going to be very well protected, so they are going to fail and also suffer casualties. So the problem is that uh, the generals, because they are stationed at different sides of the fortress, so they have to communicate with each other to agree on a coordinated time to attack together. And because of communication, it's medieval times. It's, that's why it's called Byzantine generals problem. So there's no like telecommunication. So any communication has to be conducted by like messengers who has to deliver the message across different stations. Uh, so this is basically Byzantine generals problem. And of course, it's a fictional uh, problem, but it tries to describe the situation uh, that you just mentioned about different computers need to reach consensus. Uh, for example, just in the case of cryptocurrencies, as you mentioned, if there is a Bitcoin transaction taking place, uh, then you can look at the blockchain and figure out, okay, well, this transaction has indeed happening. But in reality, what goes on is that Every node in the Bitcoin, right, they maintain a database, what transaction has happened. So in order for all the replicas to have the same uh, view, 
it's very similar to the Byzantine generals' problems because they have to communicate with each other and just to make sure that all the replicas on every node is identical. So for everyone to have the same view or to have the same replica of the database, I understand that, for example, if we take the example of Bitcoin, that's, of course, uh, what they call the mining, and the, the mining process is a way to arrive at the consensus that everyone has the same view. Is that right? Yes. So we can actually take things in two parts. So first of all, there is the consensus part, and then there's also this incentive part, right? So the mining process we can think about is actually a combination of two. This is at least my view, uh, because uh, we know that miners spend electricity costs and other costs, right, for the chance of winning new blocks rewards, right? So that basically is a way to first incentivize miners to participate in this consensus process. And second is a way to have fair distributions of mining rewards among the miners. So if we get away from this incentive layer, right, if we just simply just think about this consensus part, and what really goes on is basically this peer-to-peer -peer communication layer among all the nodes, right? So basically, uh, they need to hear about what is the latest block from its peers. And uh, whenever they have amended database by appending a new block to the latest block, they also need to propagate these blocks to other other peers, right? So we can think about this consensus process is basically peer communication, right? So like you talk to me, I talk to you, I, and I talk to my friends, and you talk to your friends. In this kind of communication process, consensus is reached. So you talk about incentives, and I think this is where the game theory aspect comes into play. So the miners, as you mentioned, you know, they have to uh, pay for the electricity, for example, to perform the mining, and they are rewarded in bitcoins. So, of course, they will do that only if the bitcoin rewards are greater than the cost that they put in, right? Sounds like incentives play a crucial role to keep the network going. And the thing is that when we think about blockchains and bitcoins, Maybe some of us think of it in terms of computer nodes, but at the end of the day, there are humans behind operating all these, uh, well, computer nodes, right? And mm -hmm. when there are humans, we like to optimize our outcomes. And when there are incentives, we like to optimize our incentives. So I guess from my perspective, this is where game theory comes into play. How do we strategize to optimize our incentives? And this is where a lot of the game theory and Bitcoin uh, discussions are, are centered around. Is that the way to think about game theory in the context of Bitcoin and blockchain? Yes, I think you are hitting the nail on right on the spot. Uh, game theory is basically as a kind of a set of mathematical models to describe how people behave, uh, how do they make decisions while they interact with each other. Right? So, and there are a lot of uh, solution concepts. One of the most famous one is Nash equilibrium. And the idea is just, okay, well, if we believe that everyone is rational, everyone will do what's optimal for themselves. And then the prediction would be that the game will end up in a Nash equilibrium. And there are some examples that we hear about, some examples of our game theory tactics in Bitcoin and blockchains, um, for example, like selfish mining or spamming your rival network with uh, spamming transactions such that it causes a denial of service. And of course, we hear a lot about people stealing you know, crypto assets of your rival network and to destroy value and hence the confidence. Um, so these are some of the famous examples that we hear about, but you also have uh, done quite a lot of work in terms of game theory examples. i just add one thing on game theory since you talk about the selfish mining. I mean, selfish mining, when it first came out, I think was maybe 2014, if I got it right. 
uh, was definitely a very shocking result to the community. And I think the root cause for why it was a shocking result is that it kind of reflects uh, some of the challenges in applying game theory to real life. The reality is always very complicated. And a big game theory is a mathematical model to describe how people can behave. Right? We have to specify what is people's action space. Like, for example, like with the model poker, right? We have to say, well, what is the rule of the game? What are the set of actions you can play, right? You can play a king or play a ace, right? But there's always limitations because the real life is not like a very well-specified game like poker. And you can always play actions that are outside of uh, what people have defined, right? For example, like uh, we don't think about, okay, when I play poker and I would just want to win, right? One, one way for me is just like I, I kill every, all, all my opponents, right? This is another way to win, but typically we do not think about that. So I think just one reason why people look at uh, selfish mining as uh, such a, a kind of surprising result is because it opens up uh, the action space because people traditionally just think about, okay, what kind of blocks do I propose? But you don't think about, oh, there's actually an option for each not to disclose the blocks you have just found. This points to the challenge of applying game theory to modeling reality, but also creates opportunity. If you are creative enough to open up the action space to model uh, any questions that people are interested in, and then game theory can actually be a very fruitful arena. So, so talking about my, my own research uh, that applying game theory to study blockchain. So one paper that I did uh, that was did a couple of years ago was uh, looking at the, the creation of mining pools. It was at the time that uh, people look at the rise of mining pools and people get really, really concerned because they wonder whether the mining pools are just going to grow and maybe there is eventually there is going to be a winner-take-all phenomenon so that everybody joins a mining pool and destroys the whole purpose of Bitcoin uh, decentralization. And so we had a paper that uh, basically apply game theory to model the interactions between uh, different mining pools. Right? So mining pools, uh, they can adjust their fees. So when a mining pool grows large, it's actually optimal for the mining pool to increase the fee it charges to the miners. Perhaps an immediate question uh, for our audience who are not too familiar with mining pools. Uh, we are talking about miners who come together to pool their resources so that they can validate a block quicker than their competitors. Is that a way to think about mining pools? Typically, with the way we think about why miners want to join mining pools, first of all, you are correct that mining pool is that just you pull your computing power together to look for the nonce for the new blocks together. Right? And the, the reason, the biggest reason uh, for why miners want to join mining pools is they want to uh, diversify away uh, the risk or just smooth their income from mining because uh, mining is a very risky business. Typically, you do not hold a significant percentage of the computing power. So that means that most of the time, you're just going to be burning electricity and not getting any reward if you don't join a pool, right? Doing mining is like buying a lottery. Right. So by a lottery, you can expect that it's kind of risky. And the joining mining pool is just basically say, okay, let's just pull our money and buy all the lotteries together. Right. And it's just like whenever there is a reward to our one of our lottery tickets, then we're just going to divide our the payoff. Right. So th this is a way to smooth out the income. That's, that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah. So you say that as um, mining pools uh, get larger, the fees uh, get higher. So to make an analogy with the lottery, right? So like if I organize like 10 people to buy lottery together, right? Because I organize you together, I, I can potentially 
uh, take a cut, right? And say, okay, well, whatever uh, whatever we got from this joint effort of buying lottery, we're going to take 1% out of it, right? And you guys divide the remaining 99%, right? You can see that I can adjust this, uh, this reward, right? But the reason why I can charge higher fees is just, it's really just because consider it like if I am organizing 10 people to buy lotteries together versus I'm, I'm organizing, I'm coordinating a million people to buy lotteries together, right? And the reason for more people who buy lotteries to join these different groups is because they want to smooth their income. And apparently if you join a larger group, right? If you join a, a million people to buy lottery together, you can smooth your income better, right? So that's why like a large a larger pool tends to be more favorable, right? It's more attractive to a smaller one. And if I know that like you are more attracted to a large pool, as an organizer of larger pool, I do just have the ability to charge higher fees. So that leads to uh, what we found is that there's kind of a mean reverting force for large mining pools to actually grow slower so that I kind of destroys this tendency uh, towards centralization in mining pools. So I think this is one application of uh, a game theory thinking to study the industrial organization of the mining industry. So um, you also talked about uh, people joining pools because um, they do not have the resources to mine on their own. So you need significant resource. So talking about this, what are the resources that people need in order to, you know, deploy all this sort of game theory type uh, tactics in blockchain? So I think game theory thinking should be applied for every participant in the ecosystem. Uh, as long as you believe that you are facing people who are rational, then you should apply game theory thinking. So I don't think this is kind of reliant on what resources you have. So, and of course, the way people may say, well, like, if you kind of take a very mega perspective on game theory, you can think about like my optimal strategy takes computing resources. Then you can, you may argue that if you have a lot of resources, you have a lot of, uh, a lot of just skin in the game, then the benefit you apply game theory is going to be better for you. If you're doing Bitcoin mining, right? So a, a mining machine is, is not cheap. I don't know about the, the latest price. At the time we did the study, uh, the most advanced version of a mining machine can be around like more than a thousand US dollars. And also um, serious miners don't just buy one uh, mining machine, right? They actually buy a lot of mining machines, a 10 or 20 and even more as a institutional uh, miner. So like if you really have a lot of stake in the game, then I would say apply game theory just in all your decisions. I think, I, I think it's a general rule that the game theory is useful. Of course, how, whether you can apply it, and that may be difficult, right? So that requires a lot of expertise. And that's why, that's why I have a living, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> right. Okay. So I guess um, the prominent sort of game theory um, incidents that we hear, which involve 51% attacks, and that is because people have so much skin in a game that they go all out to deploy a game theory tactic. Uh, I don't see the particular connection with the 51% attack. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's kind of very hard for anyone, at least for Bitcoin. It's right now, uh, it's quite difficult for you to get 51% of the computing power devoted to Bitcoin mining. Uh, it may be possible for smaller coins. But even if you are just a small participant, 
small compared to the aggregate wealth of a particular coin, then you, of course you would care about the game theoretical analysis, for example, about 51% attack, because if such attack happens, that is going to impact your own wealth level. You talked about smaller coins are being more vulnerable. Would it be fair to say that non-permission uh, networks where you don't have to go through levels of approvals to gain participation are also more vulnerable to game theory tactics? Because obviously, if it's permission, you're less anonymous and you're probably less uh, uh, susceptible to exploiting the game theory aspects on your peers. I think this is a kind of a complicated issue. Being a permission blockchain, on one hand, uh, may may bring more danger, right? Because like, for example, people may DDoS me. But on the other hand, uh, we may also say that having a permission blockchain may also alleviate some of the problems, right? So the reason why they have permission is because they don't want everyone to participate. They want people either they can trust or either have a reputation to participate, right? Also because participating in the maintenance of a blockchain is a, is a repeated game. And this may actually help to discipline the participants to behave well. But just think about like traditional uh, prisoner's dilemma in game theory about two prisoners, they got interrogated together. Do they want to betray their friends and just sell them out? If the game is only played once and everyone is selfish, uh, the game theory would predict that, well, uh, they should uh, betray their friends. Right? But if they were, they were repeatedly interrogated, this repeated interaction may incentivize them to actually behave nicely. Yeah, the prisoner dilemma is always a favorite example when, when we talk about game theory. But I think it also talks about like uh, how you can choose between um, honesty and you confess. It does not really yield a better outcome than if you know both prisoners cooperate and do not confess. Yeah, yeah. But like, but like you say, if it's repeated, people will mean revert yeah. to a solution that is optimal. Right. Exactly. As you mentioned, when everybody does what's optimal for themselves, uh, the social outcome may not necessarily be optimal. Right. So this difference between. Uh, the individual optimality and the social optimal outcome. And it's because the presence of this difference, right? It makes studying and game theory interesting. Uh, but, but of course, as I mentioned, the difficulty in applying game theory in reality is always figuring out how you model it, right? Mm. Yeah, like you say earlier, reality is complicated. And when we talk about Bitcoin and blockchains, many people would say that, you know, it's decentralized. And there's a huge assumption, though, I think that everyone is going to be honest and will not collude or cooperate to optimize their outcome because of this incentives that is inherent in Bitcoin mining. So would it be fair to say that, you know, when we talk about decentralization in blockchain and how um, it is advantageous to say centralized system. We are ignoring the fact that incentives and human beings are behind these uh, operations and therefore there's pockets of centralization. Let me just first uh, circle back to uh, this difference between honesty and uh, being rational. So like also just circle back to what we discussed at the beginning about the Byzantine journalist problem. So um, I, I think when I talk about the Byzantine journalist problem, I actually didn't I didn't mention what is so-called Byzantine. As I mentioned, this Byzantine generalist problem is used as a metaphor uh, to motivate a lot of computer science problems in actual distributed databases. There has actually been a lot of protocols developed to tackle the Byzantine generalist problem. But at least so far, uh, we see that most of these protocols, uh, they have this very strong underlying assumption of like, most of the nodes are so-called honest, being honest just means that you tell them what to do and they will just truthfully follow.
follow what you tell them to do, right? And then they also assume that certain nodes are so-called Byzantine, that they may do all kinds of harmful things uh, to the network. Say, so, okay, if we uh, have an upper cap on how many so-called Byzantine or arbitrary behaving nodes and all the remaining good ones interact with each other, we can still guarantee that the outcome is desirable. So this is the traditional view of how distributed databases have been looking at. So the, for these protocols, they, of course, they are very useful. But the problem is that there's not much incentive behind these type of protocols, right? Especially like we say, okay, some of the computer nodes are honest in that they will just blindly follow whatever protocol you give to them. Right? These are reasonable assumptions if the protocol is applied under just one entity. Like if Google applies this to its own database, that's fine because all the supposedly all the computers are controlled by Google and Google order them to do what is optimal for the Google and they will do that. Uh, but if we apply this to a blockchain system, right? If you think about every different node is just controlled by different uh, stakeholders. And so they may not necessarily have aligned incentive with each other. So it's important to understand when you prescribe some honest behaviors to these nodes, will they also have the right incentive to follow these protocols? Right. So this is actually kind of one of my most recent paper. The idea is really just we want the honest nodes to also be rational. Not only we need to design a protocol to tell what honest nodes need to do, we also want to make sure that it's incentive compatible in the sense that uh, the so-called honest nodes, they do have the right exact incentive. It's optimal for them to follow whatever protocol you prescribe to them. Mm, it seems that incentives play a huge part in keeping the network functioning as per prescribed by the code or the protocol. So talking about this, what do you think will be the outlook on the application of game theory to blockchains? How would we go about aligning these incentives? Well, so I, I think you can look at the incentive, like the network layer. So uh, what is the incentive for miners to actually propagate a new block they have received, right? So like a lot of models typically just take that as given, right? In the peer-to-peer -peer network, you receive new block and you propagate it to your peers, but do you really have the right incentive to do so, right? So like a lot of research, like including some of my, my latest research, look at, the, like in addition to, uh, you can look at those proof-of-stake systems. So they have those so-called slashing mechanisms. So it just means you need to stake some coins in order to participate in a consensus process. Okay, you have your skin in the game. And if you do not, if you misbehave, then you're going to be slashed. So some of your the coins may actually be taken. And then the question is, okay, well, uh, how well do these systems work? So uh, under these the rule, right, what would be people's incentive? Uh, like, first of all, whether they want to participate in the staking. Second, once they stake, would they have the right incentive? Uh, to take all the necessary steps to make sure that they behave nicely in the consensus process, right? And also, like, if any of these nodes misbehave, what are the incentives for others to find them out and uh, to uh, kind of penalize other stakers? So just because think about just like any block blockchain system, it, it essentially is a piece of code, right? So, and, and it's gigantic code, like thousands of codes, more than thousands of codes. So every line of the code, essentially, kind of there's some decision behind it. The potential action space is really large. So uh, that's why I think I think we're really just scratching the surface now. Like, there are a lot of different dimensions we can apply game theory to, to analyzing blockchain in general.
This sounds like there's going to be a lot of research that uh, is still required to really understand this uh, game theory aspect and how it can be applied to blockchain. Um, if I may just ask one last question. Sure. Um, so comparing, yes, so comparing the application of game theory to say, for example, um, technical bugs, like um, we hear right. about the software vulnerability attacks, mm -hmm. right, on the DAO and also the Bitcoin overflow attack of 2010. So these mm -hmm. cause like huge impacts. We are talking about billions and millions. Exactly. So if a threat actor has a choice, do I deploy game theory tactics versus do I exploit technical bugs? Uh, it sounds like exploitation of technical bugs would yield a you know, more successful mm -hmm. outcome in terms of impact if, we, so if history is anything to go by. Well, so I mean, we can we can certainly plug these type kind of uh, technical bugs into the framework of game theory. So, because uh, you can think about that. So one way economists model these things would be, for example, like uh, there's always a trade-off, right? So you can you can either choose to move fast and break things, right? Just push out new codes. Right? Or you can be very cautious, right? You can go rounds and rounds of code audits. But of course, like if you do that, right, certainly there's direct cost to auditing codes. And second, there's also just there's opportunity cost, right? Because like you delay the uh, the rollout of your new code. And this is also actually can be modeled by game theory, right? This is in kind of an incentive problem, right? So what is the potential loss to a technical glitch? And uh, what is the cost? of mitigating them, right? And you need to find the optimal trade-off. So uh, I think for this particular angle, we can still apply game theory uh, to it. Right, yes. If we look at the um, the attacks in the past, it would seem like um, the threat actors have modeled this uh, in some ways and decided that exploiting technical bugs would yield a bigger success. Yes, so uh, thank you, Professor Lee, for your time today. Um, I think we are, uh, like you say, we are just really scratching the surface and it's a huge, complicated topic. But I hope yeah. that uh, what you have presented would start our audience to think about how blockchains uh, could be vulnerable to game theory applications. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.